I ask you a question, you're probably going to wonder how it relates to what I'm going to talk about, but let me see if you can see what your opinion might be. What is, in your opinion, the greatest heresy that is in the world at this point in time? Would you say communism? A, um, a heresy that seeks to establish a world that is godless with a philosophy that is godless and contends that since there is no God, we need no God-occupied uh, world. I mean, communism is not as big a threat as it used to be, of course. That's not the biggest heresy. Would you say it would be Unitarianism, which robs the Trinity of its power, reduces Jesus to a mere man and the Holy Spirit to an abstraction? Um, would you say it was satanic worship? Now that might be um, something that's pretty relevant. I suppose that you've been reading as well as I've been reading how many, um, how much that um, terrible thing is affecting us. And uh, Satanism and satanic worship has reached in every community, notwithstanding our own. That's really not the greatest heresy, in my opinion, and humble and accurate as it is. The greatest heresy in the world today is the heresy that places the emphasis on what man does for God instead of what God does for man. That's the greatest heresy. And it is the breeding ground of all religions if I can just leave this undone or I do this so that, that I can gain the um, approbation of God and He can say, wow, you know, come on in, I couldn't refuse you. And it is the, it is the womb from which humanism was born. That is, the emphasis placed upon what man does as opposed to what God does. The greatest heresy in the world now is the emphasis placed on what man does for God instead of what God does for man. And it is that which the book of Romans stands against. And I suppose that if there is a, a theme that runs through this book of Romans greater than any other, it is this, this opposition to a philosophy or a heresy that contends that man's right standing with God is dependent upon what God does for man. Now with your um, uh, little uh, worksheet here that you, it's in, I, I, I'll tell you, I say some of the strangest stuff when I look through these worksheets I find laying here on the, where are you going tonight after church? Did you see so-and-so with so-and-so? Those kinds of things. Uh, on this little worksheet, I'd like for you to draw two mountain peaks, if you'll do that, and you'll put above one mountain peak, salvation, and, and above the other mountain peak, you write the word sanctification. The two great mountain peaks of, uh, that's discussed in the book of Romans with regard to um, what man does for God and God does for man. Now I think that most of us tonight would, uh, as, as Southern Baptists and Evangelical Christians, 
at least if we've been in church much at all, in a church like this, we've already uh, kind of caught on that the way a person has right standing with God is what God accomplishes for him. And that his salvation is dependent upon God's finished work in Christ and His behalf. For He saved us, said Paul and Titus, not by deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. For by grace are you saved through faith, but, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so when I declare to you tonight that, that our salvation is accomplished, not on, what, on the basis of what man does for God, but on the basis of what God does for man, it does sound kind of familiar, doesn't it? You did know that pretty well. What about sanctification? Now I need to kind of give you a little bit of a definition of what sanctification is. I'm going to have a hard time doing that because I don't know that much how to define it and you don't know that much about it either. But sanctification is that inner purification, that inner setting apart of man to God that, that accomplishes holiness for him. It is, the, it is the process by which man becomes what he is positionally. It is that what some would refer to as Christian growth, but it is that process by which man is, is, experiences this inner purification and this holiness that means that he's saved by God. He becomes like the God who saves him. See, Matthews, who has preached in Duran, as a matter of fact, used to give this old crude definition of sanctification. He said, if you went down to Blue River, I don't guess he knew about Blue River, but I, if you went down to Blue River and fell in and you were about to drown, and somebody came down to the river, saw you drowning there, and, 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 and jumped in and rescued you and pulled you out on the bank and saved you from drowning, see, Matthew would say, that's justification. And then that person began to uh, you know, apply artificial uh, respiration, begin to pump that old dirty creek river water out of your lungs. And, and he started pumping on your chest and got all that stuff out of you that's, that was, you, you swallowed when you were drowning. He said, that's an analogy, that's an illustration of sanctification. Justification is getting me out, in, in, out of bondage to freedom in salvation. Sanctification is getting that out of me that is not of God. Now how is that accomplished? I'm here to say to you tonight that probably for most of us, the, the, the concept, the idea, the, 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 the way that we accomplish that is that you and I go to work to accomplish that. And we work real hard at being spiritual. I've spent all my life working real hard being spiritual. I mean, our theme song is, has the worst theologies in that old Baptist hymn book, We'll Work Till Jesus Comes. You know, I mean, we'll go to work and we'll accomplish sanctification. In other words, we're going to do our best leaving off things and doing things, working for the Lord so that we'll gain some reward somewhere by and by, you know, have some stars in our crown. We call that sanctification. There are very few of us tonight who really believe that by doing absolutely nothing, God accomplishes that in you and through you. 
There are few of us tonight who really believe that if we do nothing, that God is pleased to bring us in to His likeness. And I suppose that one of the greatest discoveries that anyone will ever make is that discovery that we dealt with for a long time when we were dealing, when we were studying the book of Colossians, that just the same way you were saved is how you live out the Christian life. And the, and the way you were saved is that you just surrendered yourself to let God do His work for you and through you. And that same principle applies to sanctification. That's how you live out the Christian life. And that's how sanctification is accomplished. Now if you're following in your um, uh, little worksheet, notice the declaration. Let's read it again, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? I mean, what is there left to say? I bet that's what you're saying right now. What is he going to say? What is there? Can he say? Well, you know, what is there left to say? What can we say to these things? Now, what are these things he's talking about? Well, we've got to get the context. And so, once you go back up with me in verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Now, what did we say last time we met? was the purpose of God in, in, in salvation, is that we might be conformed to His image. So he says this, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that the purpose of your salvation and mine is not that we can go to heaven, but that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. And predestination means that's the guarantee that's going to happen whether you like it or not. That's going to happen. God is going to make you like His Son. It may take some of you a lot longer than, than others. I won't call any names, but that, that may be true. Now look at this next thing he says. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? I mean, what is there to say about these things? That is, that He justifies us, that there is salvation and sanctification and glorification in the wonderful work of God's redemption. What, can, what else can we say about this? Well, we can say this. God for us. Now that's the declaration. Now, I want you to, now, you know, please, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think that if I had a, you know, maybe a test next day, if I put the, the book under the pillow at night, that somehow by osmosis, you know, I didn't want to study, but if I put that book on my pillow, I might just kind of, some of it seep out in my, in my brain. Now, you're not going to get this by osmosis, but I want to, I, this is so important because I want to help you to see the secret, I believe, of the whole Pauline concept and theology. Look at this. If you'll take a pencil and you'll underline the word, God is, the words, God is for us. And out to the margin of that, I want you to put what that means, these words, in behalf of, instead of, in the place of, in the place of. Now, 
there there are two ways to interpret what Paul is saying here. If God is for us, who is against us? Now most of us interpret this path, that, that statement, that declaration like this. If God's on our side, we can just do anything. If God's on our side, we can just whip anybody, do anything, and, and we, can, we can make, we can live this, we can, we can do these good things that's necessary for us to do. And it's like, you know, um, the, the picture is of some boxing ring. If you can imagine in your mind, you know, this, this uh, boxing ring, and, and here's this guy sitting over in the corner getting beat up, and that's you kind of slouched on, the, on the, uh, the stool they got for you there. And, and, the, and the trainer, the manager, he's whispering in your ear. He's saying, you know, come on, man, you can do it. We're, we're for you, man. We're in your corner. Just try harder and you can make it. I know you can whip that guy. He hadn't laid, he hadn't laid a glove on you. I mean, just get out there and do better because we're on your side, man, and we're in your corner. That's the concept that we have of what that verse means is that we're out here in the world doing our best to please God. We're getting beat up in the process. But we have some kind of comfort in the fact that we just kind of come slinking back to God, you know, and He says, come on, man, brace up, do better, I'm on your side. That's not what Paul's talking about. When you have, when you've inserted the idea in the place of, instead of, On behalf of, you have the substitutionary concept. Spurgeon says, you can't understand the Bible apart from substitution. So that my salvation is accomplished by His substitution. His substitution is the source of my salvation and His substitution is the secret of my spirituality. Now if it is His battle and not mine, then I'm out of the picture, see. And, and there is no one against me because I'm not even in the battle. You see what I'm saying? He's in the battle for me. And whenever you open up the Old Testament, you're going to find time and time again this emphasis. You just stop fighting. Let God take over and fight for you. See? And what we learned in my Sunday school class is that, that we learn in the New Testament the principles of the Christian life. and the Old Testament, we learn the... Pictures of the Christian life. Who was in my, oh, in my Sunday school class? He just heard about it from my. And the picture of the Old Testament is that all the way through, this matter of spirituality is accomplished not by my working harder to accomplish it, but by His substitutionary work in my life. Praise the Lord for that. Now, there are four questions. The first question is, who's going to oppose us? He says in verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him, underline the word freely, freely, it's free. And if it's something accomplished freely, It's not something that is achieved. How shall He not with Him freely give us all things? Now my salvation is accomplished in the fact that God gave up His Son in my behalf. And my spirituality 
My sanctification is accomplished in the fact that having done that, there is nothing else that God will not do to accomplish my sanctification. You see what? See the argument? Paul is saying, if God will give up His Son in order that you, will, you, could, you might be saved while you're still in the state of sinning, is there anything He would not do to accomplish your sanctification now that you're a believer? And the obvious answer is no. It's like going down to Coslow's um, uh, first store in Dallas and you walk in Coslow's your wife does. I'm supposing you're wearing them. Your wife walks in Coslo's. You walk in Coslo's and just kind of window shop, look around. They're having a sale on, on the fur coats because it's summertime coming on. And just as you walk in, the guy says, Congratulations. You're the 100th customer through the door today. And, you, and because of that, you get a full length mink coat worth $5,000. Congratulations. And you can't believe it. It's a free gift. And they walk over and this guy, well, they make a big cameras are there and the publicity is there and they're snapping pictures. And this man says, you know, uh, let's try this beautiful full-length meat coat on, please. He, you just stand there and he just drapes that beautiful coat around you. And you looking in the mirror, you're the most beautiful thing you've ever looked at. I mean, a fur coat, full-length, marvelous thing, $5,000, maybe more than that. You start to leave and, and you say to the guy, could I have a bag put this in? And the guy says, a bag? If you want a bag for that coat, you're going to have to pay for it. But we're not going to give away our bags free. If you want a bag, you pay for the bag. Oh, you're a cheaper, you know, cheapskate. You know, how ridiculous it would be to go in and get the fur coat free and then have to pay for the bag. It's like giving your son a brand new automobile, $20,000 automobile. He said, Dad, can I have some hubcaps? Buy your own hubcaps, son. What do you think I am, money bags? You see? Now, once you have, listen to me, once we have established the fact that God, according to His mercy, accomplish us, accomplishes salvation for us, in the substitutionary gift of His Son, you think He's going to stop there? It's ridiculous. All right? Who's going to accuse us? He says in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now with your New Testament there, keep, put your finger on that place, and I want you to turn to, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 13 and 14 of that uh, second chapter. He says, and have you found it? Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were absolutely helpless... He made you alive together with Him. And here's a participle that just flows out of the action and it's simultaneous with it, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now what he's saying in that participle, and it connects this way, is that He makes us alive 
having in the process of making us alive, forgiven us of our sins, because it is sin that made us dead in the first place. See, God told Adam, He said, the soul that sins shall surely die and it, when, when sin caused death. So having forgiven sin, He made us alive. Having forgiven our sins, having made us alive, then this part is simple. And the having made alive and the having been forgiven is the same, this next participle carries the same weight, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Now that has some historical significance. For when a person was executed, they put the charge against him on the instrument of execution. That's why they had that sign above the cross of Jesus. Now he didn't have any, they didn't have anything to charge him with, so they made up something and they put that up there. Now what he's talking about is this, that when somebody um, had a crime against them, they nailed that crime uh, to, the, to the cross or to the means by which they were executed and it went down to death with them. Now Paul is saying, who's going to accuse you of anything? Because your crime, your sin, was nailed on the cross with Jesus and when it was nailed that was canceled out. And that charge died just as surely as he died. Isn't that amazing? Now who's going to condemn you, he said. Look at verse 34. Fourth, third question. Who is the one who condemns? You see, actually, the only person who could condemn is Jesus himself, and he's the one who is pleading our case, strangely enough. He's our advocate. Look, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. There's the four aspects. Here's the Here's the charisma of New Testament preaching, the heart, uh, the, the message of the New Testament. He died, was raised, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So that the one who has the right to condemn us is the one who is at the right hand of God pleading our case as our advocate interceding for us. I love it. I can see you're all excited about it. But I mean... Maybe it'll, maybe it'll get, get, get a hold of you. A few years ago, my, uh, years ago, my sister was married to a man in, in Abilene, Texas. And he was, a, he was a good guy, sang in a Baptist church. And, but he had a brother that was just a vile and vicious man, brutal man. And he beat up on his wife and, uh, you know, and just abused her all the time and threatened her. And, He'd get drunk and they separated and in a long short of it. He'd get drunk and he'd call her on the telephone threatening he's going to come out and kill her and all that good stuff. And one day she pulled up in the front of his business where he worked. He ran a business there in Abilene, Texas and honked the horn. He saw it was her. He came out to the car and she blew him away. And they, of course, um, filed charges on her. And this mother of my brother-in-law was is absolutely has to be the saintliest lady. Um, she went down and posted that 
daughter-in-law's bond. Took her home with her. She had three children. Took her home with her. And in this um, period of time between the posting of the bond and the hearing, where she was going to be tried formally for trial, um, she kept her in her house, took care of her, and went to the judge and pled for her freedom to the judge. And she was, she was uh, dismissed without an indictment by the grand jury on the basis of the plea of her own mother-in-law whose son she'd killed. Now that's not the perfect analogy here because the one we killed is the one who pleads for us. Now who is going to condemn me if the person I killed don't even condemn me? It's pretty phenomenal. I mean, I do a lot of things, but who can condemn, who can top this? You see what I'm saying? All right, then he says, who can separate us? Verses 35, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, but all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And, and here's, here's, here's the picture. There is no judge in the courtroom to judge us. There is no offended to condemn us. There's not even a jailer to take us off to jail, to separate us and take us off to jail. You talk about glorious security. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, now he says, you know how to be a conqueror over tribulation? Be, be patient through it. How do you become a conqueror through, over distress by mastering every difficult situation? How do you overwhelmingly conquer persecution? By being Christ-like toward the persecutor? And how do you overcome nakedness and famine and the bitterness and the, and the pain of that? Well, you, you let economic adversity teach you the wealth of spiritual things. And you say, well, I just can't do that. I know you can't, but it's not your responsibility. Look at verse 37, he says, Through Him who loved us, so that this Christ who saves us and intercedes for us, enables us to do those things we don't have the strength to do in ourselves. You see what I'm saying? Now notice how that happens. I left out on purpose, verse 36. Because the question is, and when you get into a study of the deeper life or the spirit-filled life or whatever it is, there, one of the extremes that... that that the deeper life movement taught, I think, was, one of the way we interpret it was, that you just became passive and just, you know, and just let, uh, you know, God just do it, you know, without you doing anything. You had no responsibility. Ah, that's where we miss the mark. Look at what verse 36 says. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long, we're counted, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now that's not a very um, happy prospect. Now, I've preached this, I've read this text at sermons, at, at funeral services. You know what I do when I get to verse 36? I skip it. 
because it just doesn't seem to fit there, does it? I mean, like sheep, we're being slaughtered. You being slaughtered like sheep all day long? And I've, I've struggled with this and worked with this for a long time. You know, what, you know what he's quoting? He's quoting Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 is the cry of the psalmist in anguish because he feels distant from God. And when a person feels distant from God, he feels like he's, it's worse than death. It's death all day, you know. It's, it's a slow and agonizing thing when a man feels that he's separated from God. Now, how does that fit here? Well, let me tell you how it fits here. What he's saying is this, that the way you and I lay hold on and appropriate this power that enables us to overwhelmingly conquer is to maintain a relationship and a fellowship with Jesus that is, that is, a, is like oneness. And the way we maintain that fellowship and that unity and that relationship with Jesus Christ is that we daily die to self. Because the thing that separates us in our fellowship with God is that we self gets in the way. Now how is it that I'm going to maintain the kind of the kind of walk with God so that He lives His life out in me, that Jesus is released in me by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to daily die to self so that I live in absolute communion with God. And there's nothing between us. And when something comes between us so that His face is veiled and cannot be seen, that's when I lose my power. And so I maintain this daily fellowship by daily dying. And dying to self means that I consent to my own death and I choose against myself. That's all that means. All right, two applications on the back. I don't know how in the world I got those words on the back, that I, but it was from somewhere. Two, two applications. Number one, when we lose what we demand we find what he desires. I demand my rights. He said, I'll take that. I demand to be happy. He says, I'll take that. I demand to be successful. I'll take that. For when we lose what we demand, we find what he desires. Second, when God removes something valuable, he replaces it with something that has no price tag. When we lose something valuable, he when He takes something valuable, He replaces it with something that has no price tag. By that I mean this. And when we die to self, we give up that which represents self. He replaces it with that which is 
of greater value than the world itself. Let's pray together. Our Father, help us to know for sure that we've been saved. And then help us to know for sure that the way we live that salvation out is the same way we got saved. By the surrender of our lives to the work of the mercy and grace of God in us. And help us to see that our part is just a willingness to lay aside that which separates us from the Lord, from His blessed face, so that we can have total, unhindered, uninterrupted communion with Him. For I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. There are three invitations. Just like always, some things never change. An invitation for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Why don't you quit trying to save yourself and let God save you? Why don't you quit trying to gain His approval and let Him accept you just as you are? Why don't you come and give your life to Christ? Or maybe you need to come tonight to join the church or to follow the Lord in baptism, having accepted Christ in some day past. Rededicate your life to the Lord. Something between you, you want to repent from that so that you can be in absolute communion with God. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.